Take a moment to consider a wild animal. I mean, really consider it. Imagine where it might be, what it's doing, what is its life like? Try to create a clear picture of this animal in your mind. This is the beginning of a thought experiment used by philosopher Oscar Orta. Oscar is a professor at the University of Santiago de Compostela in Spain, and he also co-founded the organization Animal Ethics. He says he often asks this question when he's beginning a talk about wild animal welfare, and it helps to illustrate how unrepresentative our images of animals in nature really are. Uh, before the talk, I've asked the audience to think about a, a, a wild animal, and the majority, I mean, not everyone, but almost everyone think of vertebrates. In most cases, they think of, of mammals. Uh, well, these animals are a tiny minority. Uh, I mean, most animals uh, living out there in the wild are invertebrates. And even if you consider vertebrates, uh, mammals are just a minority. Not only that, when you ask them, did you think of an adult animal or of a juvenile animal, a, a very young animal? I haven't found anyone yet who have thought of a juvenile animal, so most I mean, everyone thinks of, of an adult animal. But the fact is that it's not just this. It's that, that they find the question uh, of at first. It's like, why, what are you talking about? Juvenile, uh, adult animal? They straightforwardly think of, of adult animals, never very young animals. So they never think of the animals that are the overwhelming majority of nature. And that explains why they are unable to really uh, know uh, how animals deal in nature. If, to start with, they don't even know well what are the animals that are out there in, in nature. I'm Maya Pearl, and you're listening to Wildness. Wildness is a podcast about the experiences of animals living in the wild, and the people who are working to help make those experiences better. I'm making this podcast in conjunction with Wild Animal Initiative to work towards a better understanding of wild animal welfare. Wild Animal Initiative is a nonprofit that works to research, raise awareness, and reduce the suffering of animals. Support this podcast and other projects at wildanimalinitiative.org slash donate. I've been interested in animal rights for a really long time. Growing up, my favorite animal was a pig. Unfortunately, a pig is a lot of other people's favorite animal to eat. This led to a pretty early reckoning with the question of why would I ever want to eat an animal that I love? And then why would I eat any other animal? At this point, I've been vegan for about half of my life, so for the last decade and a half or so, I've been thinking pretty critically about how animals are treated and what their lives are like. When I think of animals on factory farms or otherwise in human captivity, there are some pretty straightforward actions I can take. Let's see, I don't eat cheese or wear leather because I don't want to support animal agriculture. 
I don't go to the zoo because I don't think it's right to keep wild animals for our amusement. In fact, I've pretty much been running on the assumption that it's probably best to just be leaving wild animals alone. But until recently, I hadn't really considered what leaving them alone really means, or questioned whether our responsibility to wild animals might be greater than that. I grew up in a house kind of where everyone was constantly talking about wild birds. I was thinking about biodiversity. I was thinking about preserving species and and protecting animals that seemed sort of beautiful or rare. That's Abraham Rowe, the executive director of Wild Animal Initiative. He helped found Utility Farm, one of the earliest groups that worked on these issues, and has been writing on wild animal welfare for several years. He's talking about his life growing up in a family of birders. Sort of a valuable experience is seeing a wide variety of species in a single day or something like that. But I think what really sort of made me realize that wild animals might be just incredibly important to think about ethically was just thinking about how many children many species of wild animals have or how many offspring they have at one time. With animals that have a sexual reproductive strategy, if they have more than two children, that obviously implies that some number of those kids are going to not make it to adulthood and have kids of their own. And then you sort of quickly realize that there are these species that are having hundreds and hundreds of children. And and this question is raised of, well, what's happening to all those animals? Uh, why are they not making it to adulthood? What are their lives like? Throughout this podcast, I'll be talking to scientists, philanthropists, and animal advocates who are working to learn more about wild animal welfare and promote wild animals' well-being. This subject is new to me, so I'll be learning along with you as we go. This first episode is called Who Cares About Wild Animals? And in this episode, I'll be talking with three people who care a lot about wild animals. Not only that, but they've become convinced that wild animal suffering is one of the most common forms of suffering in the world. Something to remember is that sort of the further away, so to speak, animals get from us, generally the more there are. Uh, you know, there are, there are tons of fish and there are tons and tons of, of insects. Like even if insects suffer one in one thousandth as much as I do, uh, there are so many insects that it's probably still really worthwhile to pay attention to insects because there might be 10,000 or, or 100,000 times as many insects as there are humans. And that means that sort of the degree of their suffering is that big, even if they individually only suffer very little. Oscar, the philosopher from the beginning of the episode, told me that as he was learning more about wild animals, he started to have this realization that maybe their lives were a lot different than he had always assumed. He was finding more and more evidence pointing to this really unsettling picture of all these animals' lives just filled with suffering. I was trying to resist them, and I was like denying them and thinking, well, this may, cannot, be, cannot be right. But eventually I had to, I had to accept them as, as correct. It's really interesting to me, just like the idea of kind of grappling with your own, your own opinions or intuitions about how animals' lives must be good and just something you consider knowledge. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, now I find it uh, totally normal. But um, the, the big picture is one that is not uh, really a nice one. It's one in which uh, nature is no longer this uh, pretty place where you go and relax. 
It's a place where there is a lot of suffering and actually where suffering may prevail, may be uh, more significant than, than positive well-being, than, than happiness. So this idea, this is an idea that is it's hard to swallow at, at first. And um, many people, because of our um, maybe uh, wishful thinking, uh, don't like to accept. So, so yeah, I have to confess that I have to struggle with the, with the idea. He says that sometimes it's easy to think of nature as this sort of pleasant alternative to our society and all the things we feel like human beings get wrong, including the way animals are treated. We want to think of maybe some kind of idyllic place where all these evil things aren't happening. And so it's very easy to think that maybe nature is the place where, where this idyllic situation uh, is going on, which is not. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If there were such a convenient alternative already, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, we're looking for it. When I talked to Abraham, he also described the sort of disconnect between how people think of nature and how it may actually be. What do you think keeps most people from recognizing wild animal suffering as a problem? I, I mean, I think when it comes down to it, we really have a deeply internalized value for nature as it is. And we also have a really idealized version of nature that we're told is real. He's talking here about the way we're used to seeing nature portrayed. Abraham says that from a very young age, we're shown these idealized pictures of nature, like in The Lion King, where all of the animals get along and sort of accept their fate in the circle of life. Which is a pretty brutal movie when you think about it, where the apex predator uh, runs a hereditary monarchy over all the other animals. When in reality, Abraham says there's probably no deer who's just cool with being eaten by a lion. Many deer might live their entire lives, you know, in a constant state of anxiety about being hunted. And, and we don't get that picture of nature as children or, or at any point throughout our lives. I also think nature is just incredibly pleasant for people. Like uh, taking a hike is uh, just a lovely thing to do. And so we have to recognize that that experience is dramatically different than the experience of a baby frog who might have a one in 1,000 chance of making it to adulthood and who will likely either be killed by a predator within a few days of, you know, uh, existing or starve to death. Um, you know, our experience of nature in cities where there are boardwalk paths or just easy access that's very safe is just radically different than the experience of animals in nature. Persis Iskander, formerly the executive director of the Wild Animal Suffering Research Project, told me about witnessing something that sounds like a scene out of a live-action version of The Lion King. The same year that I went vegan, I also went to South Africa, and I was working there briefly, and then I went on a safari and I saw um, a lion hunt uh, and kill a zebra. And like at the time, I was so excited to see wildlife in action. I mean, I honestly... Like, I thought it was so cool that I got to see a hunt. She told me that she first really contemplated whether animals could feel pain when she was 19, after reading Peter Singer's book Animal Liberation. The next day, she decided to go vegan. She says it felt like this huge oversight, and she immediately knew she just didn't want to be a part of it anymore. Um, and then, you know, six years later, I discovered... Um, effective altruism and I read some of Brian Tomasek's work on wild animal suffering and 
I honestly had the same feeling of realization. Like I couldn't believe I had gone all of this time without making the connection from, well, if the animals that I eat can suffer, then surely all of the animals that are being eaten or going through some kind of negative experience um, also have the capacity to suffer. And this is something that I should actually care about. Persis is someone who pretty clearly values and cares about animals. But you might be surprised to learn that she's not exactly what you would call an animal person. She has a dog who's the love of her life, but aside from that, she says animals kind of freak her out. I feel very uncomfortable around animals. I feel like I don't fully understand them, and I always get very like anxious around animals. I'm particularly worried that they might like misconstrue <laughs> the way I'm approaching them and get afraid or just behave in a way that uh, kind of freaks me out. So I'm not I'm not someone who actually like interacts with animals a lot. I think that that's probably that's not really a huge part of what influenced me to work on this. I think like what has really influenced me to work on this is that even though I don't understand animals, even though I might not personally, you know, be able to interact with animals in a way that pleases both of us, I don't think that means that I should just ignore their interests and ignore their their desire to live a life that's free from um, exploitation or free from suffering. In this and future episodes, we'll take a look at the lives of some of the human beings connected to wild animal welfare issues. Through their stories, we'll have the opportunity to witness perspectives different from our own and gain a better understanding of how they've come to care about this work. To me, these differences are what make us relatable as human beings. The understanding that someone else has a full life with their own unique history. We know we can kind of rely on empathy between human beings, but I'm wondering, yeah, do you think it's implicit towards other species? Well, I mean, many people really feel sympathy for 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 many other animals. Uh, there is a trap involved here, which is that uh, this doesn't happen with all animals. So with other vertebrates, maybe, or even with invertebrates that look cute to us, maybe, I don't know, butterflies or yeah, bees, for instance, uh, we may feel that empathy, even if not to the same extent. But then what happens with animals that, that aren't considered or regarded as cute, right? One thing I wonder about is if we need to relate to animals in order to care about them. In the same way that another person's individuality creates this sense of a full, incomparable life, is it possible that we can understand other animals as unique individuals? Can their lives matter to us regardless of how different their experience may be? I do think that people feel empathy, but I think that's that's uh, insufficient. So at some point, the you know the defense of, of all these animals need to become a bit more abstract and and to appeal to the idea that uh, all sentient animals really uh, need respect and help when when they are in need of aid even if, if we don't feel this direct empathy towards them. So I think I am probably someone who empathizes quite easily with um, experiences that cause some kind of pain. So for example, with other people, I, I empathize very easily with women who um, face like many different forms of discrimination and that's because I am a woman. And so I can very easily put myself in the shoes of women who have been harmed 
or who are subject to like unequal treatment or violence. Um, and I can very easily think, well, if I was in that position, um, I would feel really terrible. If I was in this position, I would not be happy. So the sense of injustice is really strong. I do think one thing that is concerning is that um, I wouldn't want to rely too heavily on empathy to um, build like a, a base for support for animals, because I think one element of empathy involves like anthropomorphization. And we want to be careful not to necessarily anthropomorphize the animals that we're trying to help. Um, it's not always helpful to say, well, if I was in this cage, I would feel like this because my experience is not the experience of the hen. Um, and if we want to have robust policies, we need to make sure we are um, robust in the way we apply the information that we have. I've definitely always loved animals and always been, you know, really, I guess, concerned for animal welfare. Growing up, I lived with cats and dogs and just it was awesome to kind of get to know another being who has a totally different kind of relationship with the world than I do. Uh, but in college, I think I got a lot more interested in animal rights and thought a lot more seriously about what it means to have ethical obligations to animals. Specifically, I started volunteering at a farm sanctuary where I got to spend a lot of time sort of directly interacting with, with farmed animals. There was this goat named Pete who I felt like I had a really good relationship with and who was just so kind of obviously emotive and had obvious relationships with other animals that grew over time. And, and that was really cool to watch and made me realize just how important it is to think really seriously about what the lives of animals are like and, and also try to make those lives better when possible. Chances are most people could name at least a couple of the organizations working to make the lives of pets and farmed animals better. But what about animals living in the wild? Well, um, we started Animal Ethics because uh, we saw that um, there was a need to defend uh, wild animals and to support helping animals in nature. Uh, by the time there was no other organization uh, caring about this at all, and actually the, the very few people who, who, who were concerned about this, as I said, there, there were just a few, I mean, I, and we pretty much knew each other. I mean, <laughs> we, you could actually count the number of people who were, who were interested in this. When I first heard about wild animal welfare, I was honestly a little confused. I was like, how is this a new issue? Don't most people already want to help wild animals? Until recently, I would have thought nature conservancy groups pretty much had this area covered. It turns out there's just a lot of disagreement about what the best way to help wild animals is. This comes up when we think about sort of conservation ethics, where we're often prioritizing animals whom there are very few of. And I think it might be a lot more urgent to think about animals who there are a lot of. So we might, you know, think that it's really important to stop white rhinos from going extinct. But from a welfare perspective, there might be two white rhinos and 10 million uh, white-tailed deer. And so in terms of where the bad experience is, the vast majority of it might be with the deer. And we could be framing the, these questions about sort of what's ethical in nature as about where most of the suffering is. And that's not to say that the rhinos don't have important lives who we should consider and take seriously too. But we also just have to look at the, the scope and scale of suffering um, across different species and in different populations. 
Even within the wild animal welfare community, there are a lot of discussions about which value systems or ideologies make the most sense. So there's like a lot of different parts that, that feed into my uh, like ethical value system. And I think that's probably likely to be the case for a lot of people. I think classically utilitarianism is looking at ethics as an evaluation of the outcomes of a situation. Is the world sort of better off or worse off after a particular chain of events happens? And then ranking those in terms of how much better off or worse off. Uh, and, and we're really focused on animal suffering. So we're interested in the worse off part of it and we're interested in reducing that suffering. I, I also tend to think that um, inequality is, is a bad thing and that it's bad that some, some individuals are in a very bad situation and that this is not compensated by other individuals being in a very good situation. Oscar described this situation where there's some population that has a total well-being value of 1,000. Almost like there's 1,000 well-being points. And another scenario where the population only has 800 well-being points. I mean, utilitarians may think that in all cases, the first scenario is better than the second one. But I disagree. I think that in some cases that may be so, but in others it, it need not be. For instance, he says, say that in the first scenario where the population has 1,000 well-being points, those points actually come from half of the population having 2,000 points and the other half having negative 1,000 points. In other words, half of the population is doing amazingly well and the other half is really struggling. In the second scenario, he says, both halves of the population might have 400 points. So in total, 800. I think that the second scenario is much better than the first, right? Because there is less suffering and because there is less uh, inequality. The main premise that ties this area of work together is the idea that we should help animals who are suffering and try to make their lives better. In contrast, while animal conservation groups share the concern of helping animals, they may tend to value things like protecting animal species and habitats over individual animals' well-being. Chloe Kudabak, who previously worked with Utility Farm and is now the communications manager at Wild Animal Initiative, describes this difference as one having to do with who you consider the stakeholders. In the wild animal welfare community, the animals themselves are considered the stakeholders, rather than a species as a whole, or than one version of nature that we're committed to preserving. When we think about preserving nature, there's also this question that comes up about what preserving nature really means. So I'm not really sure what people mean when they say nature. I think that's probably like one of those concepts that's very poorly defined. I mean, I think maybe you could like a very basic definition would be uh, when I think of nature, I think of um, an environment that is that has like its full integrity. So it's never been interfered with by humans or humans have never even encountered it. Um, it's basically in its like purest state. Um, I think that's something that is like very rare to find these days. And I'm not really sure that that's an extremely helpful definition because it's so limited that it means we're basically discounting the majority of the of, of terrestrial landscapes. I mean, I think that almost all the forests that you may find in, in Europe, for instance, have been uh, created by human beings. And people may think that, yeah, this oak uh, is a natural thing, but someone planted it there. Um, or planted an oak from which, you know, the acorn that fell created this new oak. 
So there is really nothing that is purely natural uh, right now, at least in most of the world. Anyway, the thing is that um, still many people hold uh, environmentalist views according to which what deserves uh, respect and uh, conservation is uh, natural entities such as ecosystems or maybe animal populations or species and, and not sentient beings. Um, who have interests of, of their own. Now, uh, this view, I think, is, is a view that we can challenge because uh, those abstract entities uh, aren't really sentient themselves. So, well, to start with, it, it's also controversial to what extent they have the same uh, form of reality that actual, actual things have, like a rock, or actual beings have, like 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 an animal, you know, uh, because as I say an ecosystem or a species is 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 a more abstract uh, idea. Anyway, um, the fact is that they have no interests. These these entities they have uh, no sentience, so they can't have any positive or negative experiences. They can't even have uh, preferences that can be thwarted or satisfied. So I think that a view that holds that uh, these entities have um, interests uh, is, is wrong. What happens also is that these views are uh, often, if, if not virtually always, defended in combination with speciesist views. Because those uh, claiming this are often ready to sacrifice the interest of, of non-human animals when that's convenient for the conservation of those entities. For instance, Oscar says, people often kill or cull populations of animals in order to restore a certain ecosystem. When he says they would never support a policy that kills human beings for the sake of environmental conservation. And this is interesting because no matter the negative impact on our ideal of ecosystem that individuals or, or individual animals or, or animals groups may have, uh, non-human animals, uh, the fact is that uh, when it comes to humans, it's pretty clear that their impact in ecosystems is much more significant. Uh, as anti-speciesists, we should ask, uh, in order to defend this policy, this environmental policy that entails harming animals, I would like to ask you, would you be prepared to be so if those animals you are going to harm in terrible ways, you are going to kill maybe were humans, and if the honest reply to that question is no, then we can't consider acceptable to, to, to do that in the case of, of non-human animals, uh, too. He says this same logic comes into play when it's a question of whether or not we should do something that helps wild animals, because environmentalists can be unsupportive of methods that they perceive as unnatural. Well, interestingly, many of the policies that they actually support are also uh, entailing intervention in nature. The thing is that they are carrying it, carrying them out for a different purpose, which is, yeah, keeping ecosystems as they are right now instead of promoting what's good for animals. Persis told me that this naturalistic fallacy, the sort of misconception people have that it's better to do things naturally, is one of the first things she explains about wild animal welfare. So basically I will compare um reducing wild animal suffering to the sorts of interventions that we've applied to ourselves. So, for example, we've developed vaccines to reduce disease and parasitism in humans. 
we ensure that we have constant access to food and water and we have shelter so we're not at risk of harm from exposure. She says that when it comes to our own welfare, there are lots of ways that people don't practice the belief that what is natural is good. A few years ago, I really started to focus on language for wild animal suffering issues. I think this kind of work has messaging issues. We haven't quite figured out the right ways to talk about wild animals and the right ways to talk about addressing wild animal suffering. So I don't actually think people find it objectionable to help a stranded or injured wild animal that they come across. Like if you encounter a deer that's been hit by a car or, you know, a bird with a broken wind lands on your balcony, most people do try and do what they can to help that animal. And that's sort of an act of kindness and compassion for wild animals that sort of involves us stepping in the way of what might be considered a natural process and and trying to make the life of that bird better. But we're less comfortable with bigger, uh, larger scale projects that do the exact same thing. And I think a lot of that is sort of caused by the way that this movement has, has talked about these issues. And so basically I try and... Um, take that intuition that they have to help that uh, individual animal um, and say that all we're really doing is applying that to a large scale. Persis and Abraham both referenced this example of what you might do if you came across this one hurt animal, and how that's pretty much the underlying principle of this approach to wild animals. This seems like a really logical idea to me, but I have a lot of questions about what it means to apply it to a larger scale. One of the questions I have about the future of this work is whether it's fair to make big decisions for other animals. It seems clear that the effect human beings have on what we call nature and on other species is already pretty large. But when we're talking about how to reduce suffering for those other species, how do we know which decisions are ours to make? When we can't get consent from another animal, how highly should we value its autonomy? I think there are probably ways in which animals do consent already so for example like they can't they can't give verbal consent in the way humans do but there are ways in which animals make it clear that they um, dislike something um, the confusing part I think is when they can't comprehend when something is happening to them um, and they find it immediately displeasing um, should we still do it so should we sort of have this paternalistic approach to animals I think that's tough but maybe my like initial and conditional answer is that yes I think we should um so we apply a lot of paternalistic um rules to humans that aren't capable of giving consent um especially if we're confident that what we are doing is going to help them for instance you are not allowed to sell yourself as a slave even if you wanted to and uh, and and I'm pretty sure and that many people would like to do so if that was legal I mean suppose that you have a uh, someone who has a daughter who is dying uh, because she needs some very expensive treatment. I mean, that person may well uh, sell him or herself as a slave in order to be able to pay uh, for her daughter's uh, treatment. And they're not allowed to do this in, in, in our societies. So there are, there are some limits to, to autonomy today uh, in the case of human beings and, and actually some, some pretty strong limits in, in some cases. And so I think if we're confident that, for example, when we vaccinate animals, um, it's going to improve their welfare, even if they face a really short-term uh, increase in distress because they have to interact with humans, um, and there's probably an element of like being trapped to, to administer the vaccination, um, I still think we should do it. 
And I think that like the small amount of distress um, is like a short-term increase in their suffering, but um, it contributes to a long-term um, increase in their welfare. More to the point, the fact is that uh, in the case of, of non-human animals, the situations in which they are, are very, very far from idyllic, but are also very, very far from the situation in which we humans are. Oscar says that in addition to the obvious threats that adult animals face in the wild, when you look at population dynamics, you see that the overwhelming majority of animals reproduce by having huge amounts of offspring. I mean, like for instance, uh, some rodents may have like more than a hundred children, and um, then uh, other animals, I mean, reptiles may have hundreds or, or more offspring. Fishes can lay millions of eggs. And of all of them, on average, only one animal per parent survives. The rest of them die, most of them shortly after coming into existence. And because their lives are so short, they have no possibilities for having positive experiences in their lives, or, or they have very few positive experiences. But then they have to endure a terrible harm because of all their suffering, all the suffering that they endure when they are when they are dying. So they may die because they starve. I mean, there are many animals who never eat. Others may be like frozen alive or eating alive or dehydrated alive. I mean, lots of horrible ways of, of dying. So for those animals, um, the idea of saying, well, you know, I could help these animals, but I'm not doing it because if I do so, I'm not respecting their autonomy. It just seems uh, pretty odd. Autonomy requires that you are able to make your decisions. We may think that um, these animals aren't in a situation in which they can make their decisions because their minds aren't developed enough for that, but I don't like that argument. Rather than that, I think that they are not able to make uh, decisions concerning how their lives are going because they die. They die shortly after coming into existence. So uh, no appeal to autonomy can work there when uh, what we are considering is helping them in order to be able to survive. And then it's when they are going to be able to, to make the decisions. This is something I really hadn't thought of until Oscar said it. Does it even make sense to consider an animal's autonomy when they never have the opportunity to use it? And then, of course, I guess we can't really assume that animals wouldn't agree to being helped in the first place. The point is that many animals would definitely agree with being helped. If you help an animal who is starving, uh, that animal will certainly agree with being provided with food. And uh, the animals who may uh, not agree with being helped, that may happen just because they aren't really understanding the situation. It's not that they... um, know all the facts involved and then they make an informed de- decision and uh, if we respect their autonomy we have to accept it no no no. it's nothing of the kind if they had the information about that they would definitely agree with being helped so that's why i would say that uh, this appeal to autonomy uh, fails when it comes to uh, defending animals in the wild it's also possible that an animal's willingness to accept or refuse help could be based on their situation within a stressful environment if you shift an animal that used to live in um, a high predation environment to a low predation environment, they end up losing a lot of the behaviors um, that are associated with high levels of vigilance and awareness um, because that stops becoming a threat. And so they sort of adjust their focus or I guess their energy on whatever is likely to be the biggest source of, um, 
uh, like the biggest threat to their existence. And so I think what that implies is that the sorts of things that we think are instrumental, the sorts of like negative experiences that are instrumental um, depend very heavily on the environment that we live in. So if we could create environments for animals where they aren't subject to negative experiences, then we might see something like their levels of chronic stress reducing. And that's like a positive improvement in their welfare. That means they no longer face that sort of um, extreme and ongoing, like long-term source of psychological distress. There are a lot of aspects of um, the subjective experience of being an animal that we don't understand. So I am, um, I have days when I feel confident that we can one day get there. And I have days when I think this is just a really difficult task and I'm not sure we're ever going to fully understand it. But I'm also not sure that we need to get to a point where we fully understand it. Like I think being confident enough that we can improve welfare is about hitting like a baseline level of confidence. She says we need to have enough information to be relatively sure that our actions won't have negative consequences, but that's not the same as fully understanding an animal's experience. Still, one of her main takeaways from this work is that there's just a lot more research that needs to be done. So before I started working, I really thought that um, in the same way that farm animal advocacy now seems like pretty straightforward, like we know what we can do to try and encourage people to either go vegan or to improve the welfare of animals on farms. I kind of thought that there would be similarly like obvious interventions or obvious paths or strategies that we could take. Um, and since I have jumped into it, I've realized that that is just not the case. She says her initial strategy was to identify interventions. But she soon realized that we have such little data on ecosystem interactions and which animals we should even be considering morally relevant that now her work is all about acquiring information. If a particular action that we're taking is the cause of suffering for animals, then that's really easy to address. We can just adjust the way we behave. But if it's a, a natural feature of ecosystems, then it's much harder because we need to think about what a change would do to the ecosystem function. You know, nature is obviously very complicated. Uh, you poke one thing and something on the other side, you know, changes entirely. And so we need to know what those consequences are and, and just do more research and, and learn more about the experiences of animals. And then in addition to research, we also recently started doing academic outreach. So um, because this problem space is massive, um, it's just impossible for our tidy team to answer all these questions on our own. Uh, so one thing we've started doing is reaching out to academics who are doing uh, really interesting research um, and trying to encourage them to think more about wild animal welfare. We can also push for there to be funding for people to do research on this. It's very possible that there are people who won't necessarily be value aligned, but who do relevant research. Were they able to find funding and if it fit within their their own research priorities? Uh, so I think, yeah, there's a lot of strategies that haven't been explored and, and I'm looking forward to seeing them be explored a lot more over the next few years. Is there an end goal for the work that you're doing? A goal? Yeah. Well, the goal is to uh, do the world a better place. So if it's impossible to help any animal at all and to reduce any suffering at all, except for that of one particular animal, if the only thing we can do at all is to help this animal, then that's the goal. If we can help more than one animal, then that's the goal. The goal is to help uh, as much as we can 
and to um, reduce as much suffering and as much uh, premature death as we can. Is uh, to do as much as we can in order to to yeah to as I said, well optimistically maybe to make the world a better place. Maybe in more realistic uh, terms, we could say to make the world as less bad as possible. So there are like lots of small things we can do today that help like a very small number of animals. And I think these are really good intermediate steps, but I'm not sure that's the end goal. The end goal has to be, uh, what can we do uh, on a large scale? And that could be either what is like one or two huge interventions that we can implement or what are, you know, 50 different things we could do in different areas that end up um, culminating in a, a large scale um, change. It's really hard for me to imagine a world that has no suffering, so to speak, though obviously that would be the ideal end goal. Uh, I think there are some really big goals that are attainable. One is establishing a really serious field of welfare biology in the hard sciences, where there is funding for people to research wild animal welfare very directly and and learn more about the experiences of wild animals that's a very attainable goal and if that's where we were in in 50 years or you know that would be an accomplishment i think for this movement uh, i think we can set our sets higher and also say we'd like to you know know with certainty that these kinds of actions will be reducing wild animal suffering dramatically uh, and be working on those projects too um, and and maybe that's possible in in 50 years also but as far as a longer term goal than that, you know, it's harder to say. Obviously, you know, eradicating suffering is the end goal, but I'm not sure we'll get there. I'm not sure if we could ever eradicate suffering entirely either. I'm also not sure whether eradicating suffering is more important than, say, eradicating inequality, or than enriching lives with more pleasing or enjoyable experiences. What I do feel sure of is that figuring out how to do right by other animals is something that we as human beings need to take accountability for and put serious effort into. The more philosophical side of this can be difficult to navigate, but I'm motivated to work through it so that I can be confident that I'm trying to do the most good, rather than making assumptions based on the ideas I've always heard or my gut reactions. Suffering is is bad. And suffering is bad regardless of who is suffering it, regardless of whether it is you or me or your sister or my mother or someone we don't know. And species is totally relevant for, for that matter. Pain is pain regardless of who is suffering it. The relevant thing in order to respect someone is whether that individual can have uh, experiences and yet yeah, wild animals or animals living in the wild they do have experiences, and unfortunately, most of the experiences they have may be negative ones. So that's the reason to help them. I guess at every moment, you just have a choice between doing things that m might make the world a better place and might make there be less suffering for animals and for people, uh, or not doing that and allowing a lot of bad things to continue happening. And, and I think that's reason enough. You know, if there's even the slightest chance that humans can can take on issues of this scope, then we should dive headfirst into it and, and try to, because there's no other species on Earth right now who, who sort of has our capacity to address wild animal suffering. So 
uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's super important to, to think about in that way and, and to work on. So each episode, I'm going to ask you to consider one thing about wild animals. And today's consideration is pretty basic. In fact, I already asked you in the beginning of the episode to consider a wild animal. Now I want to ask you to do that again. So incorporating anything you might have learned from this episode and taking into account the perspectives of the people working on these issues that you've just heard. Take a moment to reconsider what the life of an animal in the wild is like. A huge thank you to Abraham Rowe, Chloe Kudabak, Persis Esconder, and Oscar Orta for your help in creating this episode. And thank you for listening to the first episode of Wildness. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with your friends and anyone who might be interested in learning more about wild animal welfare. You can find our show notes at wildanimalinitiative.org wildness.